Join me in Acts chapter 5 as we press on in this series in Acts, which unfolds the advancing of the kingdom. 2,000 years ago it was true, and it's still true today, that the kingdom of God is advancing. So let's learn from this somewhat dramatic story of the apostles' witness. I think the theme of our story unfolds in a little bit of show and tell. Maybe you remember those days in elementary school when you could bring something from home to show and tell about. Somewhere along the way, the teachers at the school I went to had learned the lesson And they implemented a rule that you could not bring anything that was alive. All right? Although I do remember, must have been in first grade, um, bringing my sister. Uh, We had adopted my sister who was seven years younger and uh, somehow must have been like my matchbox cars and everything else, like worthy of show and tell. Uh, So the living rule was suspended temporarily for the showing of a new sister. Where do we get this show and tell? Well, in our story, the high priest and his tribe out of jealousy arrest the apostles and put them in prison. They're miraculously delivered and the angel sends them back in verse 20 and says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And as a unique form of emphasis, unlike all those passages in John that we read about life, many of the translations choose to capitalize the word here, uh, just, just to set it apart as the focus of this imperative. Go and stand on the Temple Mount, as you've been doing, and speak the words of this life. And it's interesting for us to understand in this angelic message that the disciples were not rescued for their well-being. I would almost go as far to say as the angel and maybe God himself wasn't interested in their well-being. But that could be taken as, as if God somehow didn't care about whether or not they were in prison. That would be true. He would care whether or not they were in prison. But if they are in prison, clearly it's by God's design. So his concern is not their well-being. God was not, oh no, they're in prison. His primary concern was what would make for the best witness to the name of Christ. So they are rescued not for their well-being, but for their witness. The angel says, I have taken you out of the prison to stand you right back on the temple mount to speak the words of this life. As a Christian, you must show and you must tell the life that is found in Jesus. In a sense, this language of speak the words of this life is really just in a positive. It's renaming what a witness is. So we're real familiar with Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. We're probably less familiar with Acts 5 and verse 20. Speak all the words of this life. 
The angel isn't asking them to tell their life story, speaking the words of their existence. He's asking them to speak about the new life, about the bread of life, about the well of life springing up within them because they have put their faith in Christ. The way you live and the things you say this week should represent very well a life transformed by Jesus Christ. That's the big idea of the story. We're not supposed to just be fascinated by and almost humored by this miraculous rescue that was unknown to the high priest until they sent for the prisoners. We're not even really supposed to think, oh, I know this text. It's all about the foundation for civil disobedience. We must obey God rather than men. That's there too. We shouldn't be too impressed with Gamaliel. His pragmatism falls flat. He should have just believed the truth rather than kind of seeing, well, if it works out, then maybe it's true. We, we give no virtue points to Gamaliel in our story. What we're supposed to take away from the story is our lives, the way we live and the way we speak are supposed to represent to others this life that we have in Christ. So let's begin understanding this whole story by understanding what is meant by the words of this life. Number one, I think we find the definition of this life, the words of this life, when we get to Peter's answer in verse 30. So you heard the whole story. I want to jump to verse 30 to understand what are we talking about in this little phrase, this life. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles are giving their answer to the kind of indignation of the council. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now we hear that, and it sounds appropriate, seems to fit. Those are clearly pillars of the Christian faith, historically, biblically. Yet look at the response. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Clearly, we are seeing that these words represent some other kind of life that, that is set apart in such a way that it stands in contrast to everything else we know about living this life on earth. And it's such a contrast that it can even provoke in others a disdain, a repulsion, even a hatred carried out to its ultimate de degree in the desire to exterminate that new life. So what is this 
description really laying out for us? What is the definition of the spirit or the angel's words? Speak the words of this life. What life do you have that is different from any other kind of living on earth? It's a life that is rooted first in the atoning death of Christ. Peter's condemnation of the council of the religious leaders is, you killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. This is not a new message. You can see it in chapter 2 and Peter preaching at Pentecost. His next sermon in chapter 3, another sermon in chapter 4, and now again in chapter 5. Peter is not looking to, to quote the popular author, win friends and influence people. Rather, he's trying to bring, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, conviction of sin. So in all of his messages to the council, to the religious leaders, to the unbelievers, he's saying, you crucified Jesus. But that death of Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, is foundational to any hope that we could have of ever entering heaven and being in the presence of God. The atoning death of Christ. Peter uses the language, you hung him on a tree. That's Jewish language. Deuteronomy gives us the law. And when someone was sentenced to death, they could be executed, stoned, and then as a visible sign of the curse of sin, they could be hung on a tree. But only for a short time, and then they were to be taken down and buried. But hanging on a tree was the sign of the curse of God's wrath on sin. And yet Peter is using that language, yes, to condemn the religious leaders, but I think he's calling to our minds that death is significant because elsewhere in the scriptures we will read that Christ became a curse for us. That was our assurance of pardon from Galatians chapter 3. That Christ, in our place, was cursed by God for our sin so that we could escape that curse. God's wrath is poured out on Christ and we can be set free. The atoning death of Christ is foundational to understanding what the angel said when he said, speak about this life. But what else do the apostles say? They say in verse 30, God raised Jesus. That Jesus whom you killed, God raised him up. The death or death and the grave could not hold him. He walked out of that tomb in the power of God. This is the power of the victorious resurrection over sin and its ultimate consequence, death. Sin and death were designed to keep us from God, at least from the presence of his eternal joy. Death and hell will be the eternal presence of God, but only in his righteous wrath, in his fearful holiness. Peter's point is God raised up Jesus who died in our place and that resurrection was also substitutionary. It was in our place. He was the first fruits, Paul would say, of 
a great harvest of resurrection that was to follow. The Christian faith hinges on an empty tomb. Read 1 Corinthians 15. We, devoted to following Jesus and believing what the scriptures say, we are of all men most miserable if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But if the Father raised him, then everything Jesus said is true. That he is the only way. He is the truth and he is the life. And the only way to come to God is through the Son, Jesus. Jesus was not unkind when he said, no one comes to the Father but through me. That's the Christian faith. Every other worldview will add something to Jesus, either to his work or to his teaching. Every other worldview, only the Bible comes with a message, not of do something, but of something has been done. It is finished. Only through Jesus do we have eternal life, salvation from sin, and the hope of heaven. So the atoning death of Jesus defines this life. The victorious resurrection defines this life. But the apostles continue by saying, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. This is the sovereign reign of Jesus. Peter in Acts 2 at Pentecost said, this Jesus was raised up and ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Not pacing anxiously, but sitting triumphantly on his throne. The psalmist had written decades and centuries before, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We sang it at Easter. Our God reigns. So if you haven't in a while, sit down and labor through the evening news some night this week. And then shut it off quickly and walk away reminding yourself that our God reigns. This defines the new life that is ours in Christ. Everything else pales in comparison to the hope that we will one day be with God and rule with him. His sovereign reign. But the apostles conclude by saying that this Jesus, crucified, buried, raised, ascended, ruling, is the gracious Savior. And so key to understanding this new life is the gracious salvation of Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. And I choose the word gracious because its root is the idea of gift. And that idea, that action of giving is here in our text. God exalted Jesus to his right hand as leader and savior. And why was he exalted? To be a giver. To give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We understand from this text that everything about our salvation is the gift of God. 
You've heard that language from Ephesians 2. By grace, you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. Even that is the gift of God. It's not of your own works, lest you would boast. Here we add to the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. The exalted Christ, leader and savior, giving the ability to repent. It simply reminds us that even though the Bible calls on sinners to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to repent lest you likewise perish, those commands are only completed and fulfilled in the power that Jesus gives to us as Savior. If you're on your way to heaven, it is because you believed and you repented. But if you study your Bible, you will see that repentance and faith are gifts of God. I can't even tell my story of salvation without giving Jesus the glory for the faith that I exercised and the repentance that I demonstrated. Is it any wonder that the song of heaven will be, worthy is the lamb who was slain? Because that's why I'm here. No one in heaven will ever say, I'm here because I believed and repented. They will say, worthy is the lamb. The spirit of God blew like the wind and new life was granted so that I could treasure Jesus in my faith and hate sin in my repentance. This is the life that these apostles had. This is the life that they were willing to live for, and this is the life they were willing to die for. Oh, we don't see them dying just yet. First, it was just one night in prison. Now it's a night in prison and a beating, and it won't be long before we read about James being imprisoned, and he doesn't walk out of the prison. His head is severed, and he leaves the prison to head to the cemetery. Why would he be willing to do that? Because he had tasted this life. What Jesus calls the abundant life. Do you know this new life in Christ? Secondly, I want us to consider the reality of this life. When we go back to the beginning of our story, we read that these signs and wonders were being done among the people at the hands of the apostles. And in verse 13, we read, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Just a side note, Luke enjoys highlighting the role of women in the church. So in the book of Acts, we'll see it in Luke's gospel is where we find those accounts of the women who traveled with Jesus and his disciples, often kind of caring for them, mothering them along the way, helping with all the needs of kind of this entourage of people. Just reminds us that Christianity has always been on the forefront of championing the cause of women. At times, we 
we kind of hear, especially in recent days of the patriarchal abuses of women in the church, the Protestant evangelical church. And without needing to deny that, I would only say that the problem does not discount all that the church actually stands for and teaches about the brotherhood and sisterhood of the church. Men and women equal in the image of God and and chosen and designed for their specific roles, both in the family and in the church. So just note that in passing. I don't think Luke was just speaking purely out of data or observation. He's reminding us that men and women were the foundation of this family of God. The question that arises is, what is meant by none of the rest dared to join them? And then the next verse, more than ever, all these believers were joining them. So who was joining and who wasn't? Well, the answer to that question presents the reality of those words, this life, the life that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus said he came to bring a sword. And he was speaking, he was speaking with a sobriety there because he's telling his disciples that believing in Jesus can divide husband and wife. It could divide parent and child. It, it, could, it could sever friendships because this life is unlike the living of the human life. Faith in Jesus will divide. And here we see that divide. On one hand, none of the rest dared join them. That word dared has the idea in a positive way of being bold. Kind of the negative sense of that same word is to be rash. Both of them are kind of like, let's go. One in boldness, a virtue, one more of a vice, being rash. Here, I think, when you you take that word, we have this meaning that there were some who were probably curious, if not interested, in this camaraderie that is unfolding in the early book of Acts. These people love each other. It's like one big family. They're selling some of their goods to help other people in need. That probably looked enticing. True love is enticing. That's why Jesus said, by this all men will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. It's a testimony in and of itself of the love of God that's in you. So they saw that and and must have been drawn to it, but they weren't rashly or quickly saying, I want to be a part of that. Why not? Well, it's because of what we studied in these earlier chapters. They had seen people saying, I want to live this life, this life of following Jesus. And they got thrown in prison. The very one they were following had been railroaded through the courts and ushered to a quick crucifixion. And then even some of the very followers who had lied about the selling of their property and the, and the gift that they were giving are struck dead and they're carried out and buried. So there were these curious onlookers who kind of wanted the benefits of the church, but they're thinking, I'm not getting into that kind of a mess. That looks costly. 
So indeed there were those who dared not join. They didn't see enough reward in Christ to offset the risk of actually following him. But then there were those, in the next verse, who were added to the Lord. These men and women who believed and joined the church. The bottom line is when we're talking about the life, the life that is found by faith in Christ, there are only two categories of people, those who believe and those who do not. Belief and unbelief. That's not some great pastoral insight. Jesus said, if you have the Son, you have life. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. But we have hope in this text. When we read, none dare join them, I would venture to say you know people who have not, as we might say, cast their lot in with that whole idea of Christianity. They might say something like, oh, well, I can see some virtue in that, but, you know, I, 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 just, I just am not ready to give up the way I was raised. Or, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have to do that. I think there's a lot of ways to get to God. They aren't willing to throw everything in full faith in Christ alone. When you encounter those people and you work with them, they're good people. They may have a good work ethic, uh, but they're not believers. They're not following Jesus Christ. They're not living their life in anticipation of his return. They're on your street and they're in your neighborhood. You're going to be talking to them as the summer unfolds because they're sitting out in their driveway on their lawn chair. Or they're going to shoot off fireworks with you and such. We know unbelievers around us, and some of them we are quite convinced would never believe the way we believe. There's no change that's ever going to happen in them. They're set in their ways. But I think the Bible suggests that that's not our conclusion to draw. I understand the sentiments. You're overwhelmed by their lifestyle, their kind of rejection of what's true. They buy into everything our culture has to offer. They don't want anything to do with religion or more specifically, Jesus. But the Bible reminds us that even when the church was beginning to face opposition and persecution, that more than ever, Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of them. Yours must be the faith that is just anticipating that next domino to fall. What if God in his mercy opens the eyes of that one who is blinded by the darkness of this world this week? What if you were to get a phone call or get stopped in the hallway at the workplace and someone said, you know, I've been thinking about some of those things you've said over the years. 
I'm just wondering, like, what there really is to this life. Could I talk to you sometime about a few questions I had? That's what you need to be ready for this week. Because the Bible tells us through Peter's writings, his letter to the church, that God is long-suffering, and he is still reserving his final judgment because he is drawing more into his family. Believe that. And while the reality is there are those who believe and there are those who do not, we are supposed to be hoping in the advance of the kingdom that believers were added in Acts 5 and they're still being added today. What else do we think the advance of the kingdom means? That's why this book of the Bible is here to show us that the good news will spread and people will believe. Will they all? I don't think so. But let's not settle for anything less than many and multitudes. And maybe even set our faith on some of those that we have shared the good news with and they have not yet believed. Plead for the mercy of God that they would be added to his church. We see also in verse 16 that they were gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. What are the towns around Jerusalem? Well, that would be Judea, the, the region around Jerusalem. Well, if you remember the angels and telling the disciples upon Jesus' ascension to heaven said, why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? Go and do what Jesus told you to do. And what did he tell them to do? To be witnesses. And he said it would happen in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. I also think Luke added this little detail of those surrounding towns around Jerusalem to remind us this commission was unfolding through the witness of these early believers. This is the first indication of the gospel going beyond Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. The advance had begun, and it continues today. The reality is you're going to leave this place where we feel like we're huddled up as God's people, the believers. We understand what the life is and who Jesus is who gives us that life. But now we're going out into the world, and the reality is not everyone believes. But we can witness to just how good God is in his mercy to save. Number three, notice briefly the illustration of this life. This life that is found in Christ. What's the illustration? It's there in verse 15. They carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. I wish they had used the language as it unfolds in the text because we could read that verb of falling on. It's the word that's often translated overshadowed. So they laid these people out hoping that the shadow would overshadow them because it was this healing gift that God had granted. Be like reading the Psalms where we read that we're overshadowed by the steadfast love of our God. 
Why this healing? Why the healing of all these who are sick, afflicted with unclean spirits? What's the point? Are there two gospels? A gospel of good health and a gospel of justification by faith. Forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus has done. No, there's only one gospel. Being healed of these physical infirmities didn't mean these people automatically go to heaven. Their healing of physical diseases is an illustration that points to a greater healing that is found in Christ, a spiritual healing. We heard part of the text of Psalm 103 in one of our scriptures in the liturgy. When you read on there, thanking God, or maybe that was in the Sunday school hour, rejoicing in all of his benefits, and some of those benefits that are listed are, he heals us from all our diseases. Well, that is rich and full language that speaks not only to our bodies, but to our souls. Because we we must not ever speak of physical healing without it serving as a reminder of spiritual healing. Because physical healing has no end in and of itself. It is still appointed to man once to die. Any healing you experience in this lifetime is temporary in nature, so it cannot be an end to itself if if death is still looming. Physical healing is always designed to show us that's right. God promised to fix the sin problem of this earth at the cost of his own son. So here again, we see these healings like the lame man that was healed in Acts chapter 3, and it's supposed to remind us of our big idea This life, the new life that is found in Christ. Number four, the opposition to this life. We see it unfold in verse 17. Filled with jealousy, the high priest and his party of the Sadducees arrested the apostles and put them in prison. It's a great story. We'll hear another one in a few chapters when Peter is released from prison. This one has a few of those just humorous moments. Guards standing at attention at their post, gates locked, and the summon comes to bring those prisoners to the council. And they open the gates and look in, and they're gone. And the text highlights that they're confused. They're trying to figure this out. Nobody had fallen asleep. Everybody had done their job, and yet they're just gone. And the word that comes to the council isn't, oh, they escaped in the night, and they're probably far away by now. No, the word that comes to them is that it's like that arrest never happened. They're right back in the same place, preaching the same name, that name of Jesus again. Well, we see the opposition. They're thrown in prison. We see it again at the end of the story in verse 40. They're beaten, charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. And, the, and that, that flows easily, and we think, oh, yeah, they, they were beaten. But bear in mind, this is likely by Jewish tradition that Paul would talk about later, the, the 40 
stripes or lashes save one. So in order not to execute too severe of a punishment, which could result in death, they thought 39 would keep us in the safe range and not hit number 40. So whether this was like a caning from modern-day punishments in the Far East or whipping, whatever it was, it, it's not just a quick spanking kind of thing. This is a, this is a serious physical crisis. They were beaten and charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. Clearly opposition. But listen to the language of the opposition in verse 28 when the council says two things. One, we charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They're angry about two things. You're preaching in the name of Jesus and we told you not to and you're making us look bad. You're making it look like we're guilty of his death. You're you're putting his blood on us. Well, look at Peter's response. He addresses both of these points. Verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, so their first concern is, we charge you not to speak in this name. Peter answers it. We must obey God rather than men. Simply put, the council said, don't tell anyone about Jesus. But the apostles remembered Jesus had said, tell everyone about me. So they had a bit of a dilemma, quickly resolved We have to obey what Jesus told us to do. Jesus defined us. The new life defines us. We are witnesses. We don't just witness. We are witnesses, they would say uh, in a few verses later. So we have to obey God rather than men. Now, the second point of the council is, is staggering. They actually tell Peter and the apostles that you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Undoubtedly, they remembered the three previous sermons of Peter. You crucified Jesus with your wicked hands. And now they're saying, how dare you say that we were to blame for the death of Christ? Well, anybody who has read their Bibles would know that the council, these same leaders, had very intentionally stirred up a crowd to begin this chant when Jesus was potentially to be released by Pilate. And their chant was, crucify him, crucify him. And the mob swelled with this cry for death. And when confronted by Pilate about Where's this coming from? Don't you realize this is an innocent man? Their response was, his blood be on us and on our children. So it's an ironic statement here that they would say, how dare you make us look bad by saying his blood is on us? when it is exactly 
what they asked for. And Peter calls them on it. He reminds them they are guilty before God. His blood is on them. And this story reminds us that in both word and deed, your allegiance to Jesus will be opposed. Some of you are more and more wading into these waters of opposition. Oh, you're not being beaten yet. We're not in the Middle East or India where our church will be under the threat of being burned down or your home could be. But, but you're wading into these waters because in your workplace, it's becoming the norm and maybe the imperative, the ultimatum that you embrace all the cultural confusion, all the rejection of truth about God's creation and gender. And you might be forced, if you want that job, to conform and affirm certain things. The very least, it will be the opposition to your faith in Jesus and to the truth in the form of word. Deed, perhaps, in that you could be let go from your job. But Christians all over our free nation are beginning to feel the pressure of the opposition to this life, the life that we have in Christ. But let's close by thinking this way. Even though the Christian life will face opposition, and for all of my life that, that has always been talked about in the realm of other nations and the persecuted church somewhere, and, and now we're getting a scent of it, a taste of it. But even though, even though the Christian life will face opposition, we must be sure of the triumph of this life. Again, this life, the very words of the angel, speak the words of this life, life in Christ. The triumph of this life. I want you to think triumph first by seeing verse 19. During the night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Love that. Verse 24, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they're greatly perplexed, wondering what this would come to. That's a little snapshot into the triumph of the kingdom of God. When Jesus used the language of the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, they can't withstand the attack of the church. I think he knew this was going to happen. And I think Luke was probably hearing Jesus' words and saying, yeah, the gates couldn't withstand the kingdom. They didn't hold anybody in or keep anybody out. The angel of the Lord takes them right out of there. It's just, a, it's just a reminder that God has this under control. He's not on the defensive. He's not coming up with plan B. He's just going to continue his march to the consummation when every knee will bow before him. These are glimpses of temporal victory. But lest we just take some anecdotal story and say, see, there's the kingdom 
Christianity always wins. Read the rest of the story. It'll be tempered with the reality of loss. They're beaten. And really, we cross a threshold with this beating that just ushers in all, all the horrendous torture the church has suffered in the ages to come. So in no way are we measuring victory or triumph by does the church exist in a life of ease? I'm only highlighting the deliverance of the apostles to show you, yes, see what God can do if he chooses to do that? A few chapters later, James is in prison, Peter's in prison. James is beheaded and the angel delivers Peter. I don't know why God does what he does, but what he does is good and for the advance of his kingdom. It's triumph. James wins. Peter, walking out of the prison with his head attached, wins because the kingdom of God is advancing. That's the triumph of the kingdom. That's the triumph in this text. It's not that they were delivered from prison. That, that's just a picture of the real triumph. They have life in Christ that nothing can touch. Verse 41, they left the beating rejoicing that they were invited to identify with the name of Jesus and his victory. And so triumph and victory is defined as the continuing proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Paul would say, whether it be in life or death for me to live is Christ. That is the life that you would show and tell Jesus and what he has done for you. All the weight of this story rests on the name of Jesus. Verse 28, don't teach in that name. Verse 40, we, we command that you not teach in this name. Verse 41, we count it worthy to suffer for the name. Verse 42, they went everywhere teaching, and your Bible says preaching. It's the word evangelical. That's good news. They went everywhere preaching and telling the good news of that name, Jesus. So here's victory. Here's you living the life this week. It's making known by the way you live and by the words you say that Jesus is God's plan for rescuing sinners. 1,500 years later, after the story of our text, this, the church is still advancing the gospel in the face of opposition. Martin Luther would write, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still because his kingdom is forever. Yes, it's true. The gospel will not always be well received. And it may even bring trouble on us. But may it also be true that we resolve and say, like the apostles in Acts 5, we are witnesses. It's what we do. It's who we are. Christ, our captain, we as his foot soldiers advancing the kingdom. Heavenly Father,
Thank you for your word to us this morning, calling us again to faithfulness with what is good news. Steady us with the clear purpose of being your witnesses. May we daily give thought to the gospel and its power to sanctify us and to save sinners around us. Lord, keep us faithful as your church, as your followers, as your witnesses, as you lead us all the way home. And for this, we trust you because Jesus is our faithful Savior and leader. And we pray in his name. Amen.